Hi, welcome to Launch Left Podcast. I'm your host, Rain Phoenix. Today's very special guest is Kat Power, and she's launching Linqua Franca. Don't forget, rate and subscribe. Follow us on all socials at Launch Left. Hey, Sean, how are you? I'm glad you're here. Me too. <laughs> we I did it. I can't believe it. I know, we did <laughs> it. For what, four years? Four, five, <laughs> four? <laughs> yeah, five. but patience is a virtue. I've learned to understand that more. The older you get, you find a little more of that, because I've always counted myself as extremely n- unpatient, I think is the word. Is that a word? Unpatient? Impatient, that's the word. Impatient. <laughs> impatient. Like, you know, outpatient. Impatient. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing so hard? <laughs> because actually, I think it's M. Isn't it impatient? I am. Impa- you're correct. Okay. You are the winner of a new invisible <laughs> thing. It's just hard. It's yeah. hard with all the things. I try to be as open as I can to every opportunity, especially if it's a friend, someone I love. And I feel like since you first approached me, I wanted to really do it, you know, like in a, I wanted to be completely present and not, you know, I wanted to be grounded and there for it. But in the, in that, in that effort, I think I made it bigger in my mind, you know, this is my thing. I have to be very present, professional and made it so much more precious. I'd never done a podcast before and I did one a couple of years ago, the first time. And I didn't realize how, like, it's really just two people talking, you know, to, and to have the affinity with you. I wish that I had obviously done it earlier. Um, oh, so. all in good time. And this is the perfect time. And thank you for finding it. I know how busy your life is, even if you take out all the incredible things happening with your music and and the sold out concerts coming. Your life is so full with having a child and being a single parent. And just navigating uh, existence is difficult for all of us out here, artists or not. I think that's why, you know, being broke for so long, you know, really understanding what it means and what it feels like. It's in my nature to, you know, when I was younger, take every job I could get, you know, any job that matter what, as long as I wasn't taking my clothes off. But, and that was my own personal, that was for my own personal safety. But I find that I feel like since the pandemic, so many people, so many friends around the planet, even people I don't even really know that well, but acquaintance-wise, I feel like so many more people had to really understand what it's like to sit with feelings and to sit with things that I think are creative, kind of like it's just like part of how we speak. We kind of go through all the feelings and sit with them and doing things creative helps us get through certain things and learn about the world around us through our, you know, by seat, by witnessing the world around us that I've noticed that the sense of community is seems more I feel like people are kind of done taking shit now and I think this podcast is an excellent resource you know for people who are now turned on and are keyed in to all the other things that happen in the pandemic and stuff so huge prop to you for making it real you know and bringing it to people who need it, you know, it, a lot of people don't even know they're a creative personality type because of their regimented, you know, childhood or way of life getting through the system or whatever. But I think we could all use the alliance of the creative. Yeah. You, you know what? You're busy. It does it keep you busy. Hella busy. <laughs> being broke. That was, yeah. that was circling back to say, it's all about being broke, you know, and that's a choice too. you know, making sure that you do the right work. 
Right. You know, but anyway. I didn't realize you had such an uh, accent, Sean. Who? I love it so much. I didn't realize you had such a, you have a strong Southern accent. No, I don't. What do you mean? I don't. It's it's beautiful. I don't know why I didn't notice, but it reminds me of being, you know, my Gainesville, Athens, Georgia years where, you know, it's just like a beautiful lilt, Southern lilt you have. And I want to remember now. I try to conceal it more. Why? It's so sexy. It's it's really sexy. It's beautiful. You have memories I, I don't, and I want them. And so I remember Which you telling the ones of meeting. Um, you told me we met when Your I was brother. a teenager. And yeah, with River and I on tour, I don't remember that. But I would love to hear that memory if you have it. Absolutely. I have this friend, my best friend from high school in Atlanta. Her name is Jenny, Jenny Lee. She's from Peru originally. And uh, she was doing in high school, she, well, like in middle school, she'd gotten some modeling, whatever. She was a ballerina. So she got some modeling work as a young girl. And uh, there was this guy, same name as mine, spelled differently, Sean Marshall, this cool dude. And he had gotten her a job for something else, and a campaign, some print work. And then he said, hey, call your friend Sean. Um, it was after school. I think it was like a, it may have been a Thursday night. And she called me and said, hey, Sean said that River Phoenix's band is playing at, I think it was, I don't know if it, I think it was the space that used to be the Metroplex or it was the Metroplex. He said, hey, bring your friend Sean and greet him when they pull up in their RV. Just, you know, have some nice people around, you know, to welcome them to Atlanta. So we pull up after school, we go right to the thing, to the driveway down Little Five Point. And y'all had the RV out there. and. We, the guy who opened the door, I knew the guy. And so we went in and you were on the couch on the left and Libra was kind of pacing around the dining area. It's like a wooden, kind of like, you know, those California homes, like what do they call them? Craft, craftsmen. Oh, okay. It was a craftsman home, very dark and wooden inside college students who went, I think, to Georgia State and Georgia Tech were the roommates there. And one of the guys I knew from where I worked and he's like, hey, small world. So I remember, because when I was a kid, how old would River be today? 54. Okay. So when I was, how old was he when he did Actually, yeah, he'd be 54 this year. He would be 53 right now. Um, He was uh, 12. Okay. I think. That makes sense. So I had seen, you know, like everybody else my age, probably been 10, you know, um, going on 11, had seen Stand By Me. And of course, there was that scene when he's under the tree and he says, and I felt the same way in this time of my life because of, you know, difficulty in childhood and stuff. And uh, when he said, I just want to go where nobody knows me. And, you know, watching him grow as an actor, it felt like I was kind of growing up with him, you know, as a peer. But I'll never forget that scene because that I felt the same way, you know. You know, very intense that scene when he's under the tree. Yeah. And, um, what's his name? Gordy. Yeah. Telling Gordy, I just want to go where nobody knows me. And uh, so anyway, so I pull in, and of course, seeing River, met him briefly. I just was like shell shocked, you know. I was also a very shy kid. I went to so many different schools growing up as a kid that I didn't. 
you know, I really generally had one friend per school if I was lucky to even have one, but, and I just immediately beeline to the kitchen. I know my face turned red, you know, I never kissed a boy yeah. and that kind of thing. I didn't kiss a boy till I was 18. So I made a beeline to the dining room and I went straight back to the kitchen. I was like, okay, calm down. And I turned around and he's coming, he's coming, he's in the kitchen. He's like, Hey, super friendly. He was super friendly and relaxed. And I was like, hey, and I saw people coming behind him. So I kind of was like hanging out there and I saw the empty couch. You had gotten up from the couch. So I sat on the opposite end, like in the corner, and he came right through the office and he came right towards me and he came and he sat right next to me, <laughs> like uh, the, the next couch on the corner right beside me. Uh-huh. And then the other people kept following him through the kitchen, through coming into that room. And I remember you were looking at me and you were looking at them like, who are these fucking people? Why are these people here? You know, and I remember feeling like I feel the same way. This is a setup. I want to leave. This isn't comfortable for for these guys. You know, this is not cool. You know, this isn't private. Like they need a private space. And um, And so he's like super charming and trying to make me laugh. I remember because I know that my hands were pressed together in between my knees and I was like just looking down like oh my god don't talk to me he's talking to me oh my god oh my god and he's like laughing and you know I think he was able to just I don't know he had a compassion he had compassion I think that the other people were kind of he didn't want the small talk I think but anyway and so he was really funny and like warming me up and I felt comfortable to laugh and then you sat down on the couch and it was down check. So you guys got in the RV and we got in our car. Uh, so we get to the thing, y'all sound checking. And um, they thought, you know, that we were of age, which we weren't. So I got a beer and I remember Michael Stipe came. I met him later, like maybe a year later or no, two years later. I met him in Athens with a friend of mine. But anyway, I didn't know Michael at that time. And I know you're very close with Michael as well. And I know he was close with River. And um, he goes, River goes, uh, people started coming in. He's like, and kind of, you know, when someone's talking to a group and they kind of like pat you with the back of their hand, like, you know, like on your arm. He's like, hey, y'all, y'all. And he pats me, he looks at me, and he looks at everybody. Says, Let's go backstage. Michael, Michael, come on. So we all kind of, you know, there's like maybe six of us or eight. And we go up to the back and like got a big couch. There might even be a foosball table in the back. And I remember um, River and Michael and was making jokes and, you know, you were chilling. I think you were, you, you weren't as engaged. You weren't, you weren't really engaging. I think you were talking to someone in the band and, uh, and then River does a split. You remember this? <laughs> no. They had some kind of contest about splits. Yeah. It was him and Michael. And uh-huh. River won. He did the best split. And so then it was like time really went fast and it was time for you guys to play. And I went down to the bar and I just watched from the same place we had ordered drinks. And, you know, the songs were really beautiful and fun. It was a like a super energetic. I remember people looking like they felt happy. To be to be close to him, to be you know, to be around that energy, and it was super joyful. It felt 
there wasn't like a, that sort of posturing, you know, like rock and roll, like sexualized posturing at all. Right. It was, um, it was very, it felt like a thriving. It didn't seem very rehearsed, but it, the song seemed very known. Like it was just easy, easy, fun. And it felt like, almost honestly, it felt like, <laughs> like a church, like, jamboree like you'd have like a pentecostal kind of church mm-hmm. you know with a family members <laughs> playing kind of feeling you know and people yeah. were psyched everybody was happy and then afterwards we went up to the backstage and more beer and um louder a lot more people and i noticed he was kind of pacing a little bit because i think that there were a lot of people that he didn't know that were like just filing in the back room and um, and then you had said, you know, it's time to go. We got to go. And so everybody kind of left and we're all kind of hanging on the bar. And then that was that. Wow. And I just, well, well, I always had like to this day. I mean, now I'm more like I have a lot more self-esteem and a lot more confidence as a woman, as a human. And now I will definitely say goodbye and give you a hug. And I don't care if you don't like me, I'll be much more, you know, present myself like in good tidings or whatever. Maybe we will never meet again by, because because of maybe something like this that happened. But so we left and we walked into the Jenny's uh, sister's Volkswagen Rabbit, red Volkswagen Rabbit. And I look up and your guys' RVs across the street. You know, um, like perpendicular, like parallel to the parking lot where our car is. And I look up and I see someone go on and I see you go on and I see him like, you know, look over at me and I, oh my God, he's looking at me. Oh my God. And so I went, clicked the door handle, the old rabbit and it won't click its lock. And I'm like, Jenny, Jenny, unlock the door. <laughs> Cause he's looking just because he's looking at me. I mean, I <laughs> never held hands. I held hands with a boy once for like three seconds. But anyway, so I look up again, and he's crossed his leg and he's leaning against the RV, like relaxed, and he's got his arm, his arm, like his hand, his arm bent up, and he's got his hand open, like high five, and he's just waving his hand back and forth, like a, you know, like a. Like a Do puppet, like back yeah. and forth. And, um, and I smiled and I just like smiled at him. Like, I know I look insane because I'm too shy to even fucking like, I, I saw you and like, I just psychically, I just laughed and smiled and he smiled and he got in the thing and I wait and then I got in the car. That's it. So sweet and so river to, uh, you know, your your nerves and anxiety at that time and shyness. When you tell me that he kind of like followed you and sat right next to you, that's what he would do with anyone who is with, withdrawn. Mm-hmm. And he was always just so empathetic and, like you said, very compassionate as a person. And he would find the person who was most uncomfortable and go try to make them feel comfortable. 
I love hearing that as a first person story because it's very, it was very true about him. I've actually, he has wonderful fans and I've, some of the comments that I have read in the past about things like that, like him seeking out the person who is feeling strange at a party and talking to them, like, you know, they'll share their stories and, and so, uh, hearing it from you too makes total sense. I love hearing, I love hearing that. And, uh. That's so you, wild. You really have a good memory. I I don't remember any of that. <laughs> None of it. You were so protective of oh, me. Yeah. You were always, exactly, always. Yeah. You know, yeah. that you were like the mother hen. You were like, you know, you knew. I'm a bit too I can be too protective, which is funny. I've actually had I think it was Michael Stipe once who was like, I got this, Rain. Because I'd bow up as if I was a bodyguard. That's the funniest part. I just get really protective you of people. You can see him coming a mile away. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I'll just get real protective. And um, and it is a maternal thing, definitely. Um, And I think it did come. Love. Yeah, ha- having a lot of siblings. And creatives don't have that. Yeah. People exploit them for their openness. You know, and they're seeing those human emotions and activating because they want to, you know, communicate with the higher frequency because that's really what we do, Mm -hmm. what guides us really, Mm -hmm. you know, um, what we believe in secretly, probably without even knowing. But and it only makes sense that you would, you know, see that in your in your people, you know, Michael being so, you know, popular, like. Like your brother, of course, the lines being similar. I could see that. Yeah. And and now that we're on the subject of you being a young, very young woman, and to me, you're one of the most empathic artists I've met. But I'm so curious how and what was the moment that music found you uh, as a young adult or child when you first felt that as a pathway for you? I think it was my grandma, uh, because I was raised by her class five in Forest Park, Georgia, which is near College Park. You'll hear like Ludacris talk about College Park and stuff. I learned to read it really young because she would read the Bible every night and I'd follow her finger with the nightlight, you know, the the reading light. And so when she'd come home from work and she'd cook, I was like her DJ, you know, three and four and five years old. She'd say, oh, well, sh-, you know, she'd be like cracking beans or peeling potatoes or whatever. And she'd say, oh, why don't you go, Charlotte, why don't you go and find that, you know, Johnny Cash song, uh, Jackson, and put that on the record player? You know, or, <laughs> oh, why don't you go get that Patsy Cline song, Strange, for me, darling? So I was actually literally, figuratively finding music, you know, for someone at such a young age. She would sometimes record me singing she would just record me singing all the time um different songs and it's funny because on the tape you could hear her laughing because i could imitate different voices from a really young age naturally i think that's why she recorded me um so when i met my mom and dad and stepdad they were in bands and you know singers and all that kind of lifestyle in the 70s with you know, rock and roll and drugs and different environments with different, you know, kinds of people. Um, Patrick Kelly, actually, the designer, was my, he wasn't my legal guardian, but he took care of me, um, 
you know, after I would get home from uh, kindergarten to first grade. And then his world, you know, it was all, it was all black music. It was, you know, black models coming over and then dressing me up. And it was all like old soul and that kind of stuff. And all the models, beautiful, different colored, you know, cinnamon, mocha, espresso, these gorgeous, different hairstyles, beads, cornrows, fro, tight curl, shade, you know, straightened, all these beautiful models would come on, he'd sit in and that's where I learned a lot of soul and, uh, you know, more black music was from him and them singing all the time. Cause I knew about singing in church with my grandma and I saw my dad singing and my mom singing and my stepdad singing, you know, rock stuff. But the singing was always a really big part of my life. Even when I moved around and grew up, but being a musician wasn't my, that wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be a writer. I used to write short stories when I was little, but I went then later in high school, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be like a war photographer and you know, tell the truth. I wanted to be the story. And, but I had a 10th grade education because I failed 11th grade and tried to take 11th grade again and couldn't do it. I got kicked out. So I was working at a young age and not really able to focus on what I really wanted to do, but music happened through friendships and, and I'm blessed because I think, you know, I think because of that connection, <clears throat> that safe space with my grandmother and Patrick, you know, cause I'd sing with her in church and I'd sing with him and his models like every day, just bullshitting down, the, you know, and the platform heels with Patrick and um, my grandmother in church. I think that singing is, mostly who I am as a as a creative because it's what I've been doing since I was little. So would you say that high school is when you started, like when did you go, okay, obviously music was very important to you and singing was just in you. That's what you always did, but it wasn't necessarily what you thought you were going to do. At what point did you, I'm guessing through high school friendships, is would be my first guess because that's when kind of something about the music you listen to. No, no. I had one friend. I had one friend, Jenny Lee, the girl I mentioned. You know, she would listen to Sundays and The Cure or Depeche Mode and stuff. But my, I would just get home and like all my parents, stepdads, grandma, all their records are trash. I just always listened to vinyl and college radio. I was just music was like a. I could go away, you know, I could not go away. I could be transported to like this other frequency that my mental state could flourish. You know, the weight of the world was more gentle. I could be myself listening to, to music that I love. So it was really much like a medicine for me uh, yeah. personally, but I didn't start playing guitar until I was uh, 18. There was a guy, I went to go see the cramps in high school. And there was this guy that opened up for him and, you know, really appreciating all types of music, like country, for example, and 50s, all those different things but that were older, Buddy Holly, different things. I saw this guy opening up for the cramps. His name is Dexter Romweber. And he was in this band called Flat Zero Jets. And I'd never seen anybody that listened or knew of that sort of 
aesthetic of songwriting. You know, everything else is like Jesus Blizzard, punk rock and different hardcore. Anyway, he was playing this guitar, a silver tone from the 50s. That was when I was 16. So then when I was 18, my friend and this band was selling his and it took me a couple of weeks for 75 bucks and I bought it. It stayed in, I have a Dan Electro in my corner right now, Silvertone, right now. It was standing in the corner just like that. I just look at it. And then one afternoon, I was playing three records on cycle at that point in my life. Because that's what I do. I generally fall in love with like certain records and I play them over and over. At that time, it was Aretha Franklin's This Girl's in Love with You with uh, Dwayne Allman and Spinner Oldham and Muscle, Muscle Shoals. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, Sinead O'Connor. Lion and Cobra and Journey Mitchell Blue. Wow. And that's all I'd listen to on my days off. I didn't have money to go to a movie. My best friend was a stripper. I would go hang out with her during the day because it was like two blocks from where my apartment was. One day I just picked up the guitar and I just just started picking it. I still have the same pick style. I still just use the flesh on my fingers, the flesh on my thumb you know mm-hmm. and that's when I started wow for that year yeah that's when I started writing because I was writing poetry you know and uh that's when I started writing songs how did that parlay like, to playing out did you just start playing and well, some, I, someone said you should do this for human beings or how did that move from you you alone in your apartment to 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 playing for guy. the people all these guys I worked with at this pizza place called Fellini's Pizza in Little Five Points in Atlanta, that was like a mecca for bands. And P.S., all the fucking bands were dudes, all of them. Right. There's one girl, Debbie Richardson from this band called Magic Bone. Anyway, I worked at this pizza place. I ran the register. After, you know, I worked at it in high school. So I've been there for three years, you know, two years at this point. And, uh, my friend who I met there, amazing guitar player, Mark Moore, everybody who worked there, there were like four different, five different restaurants, the same company. Everybody who worked at all these restaurants were in bands. So whenever we'd be done with our shift, like 2.30 in the morning, we'd go to somebody's basement, practice space, living room. I would always play drums. Always. I love drums. So for about six months, my friend, Mark Morgan, wanted to start a band with me, but I knew he wanted to start a band because he wanted to get chicks and have that sort of, and he was amazing, you know, but I had this father figure at the time. I always said, no, I'm not, I want to be in a band thinking like, I got shit to do. I got to save my money so I can go to college, and, you know, be a painter and go to art school and make it up to New York and try to get into art school and be a painter, be a, work at a bakery, you know, and get to my art. That was what my brain was like. So I was super shy and a total tomboy. And he would always bug me, start a band, start a band, start a band, start. But six months later, my father figure at that time, he still has the fans online. It's called Low Life. And he used to run this radio show called on WRK called Destroy All Music. And um, he came into Fellini's with this guitar player who was one of the greatest guitar players of that time, his name was Damon Moore. Mark and Damon had both since passed, but I had a huge crush on Damon. He was very stoic, very beautiful, gentle, kind, quiet, incredible. Like the way he played, he played slide, just so beautiful, effortless, 
almost like Coltrane, the way he played guitar. And uh, they walk in, and Mark says, hey, you know, Glenn said, Glenn's my father's favorite, Glenn Thrasher. He's who I'm going to be working on my book with, because I'm writing a book, Rain. He said, Glenn said that if you and I start a band, that he'll be in the band. And I laugh as I'm getting their pitcher of beer. I said, what the fuck would Glenn play? And he said, drums. And I was insulted because he knows that I love drums. And then Damon is standing there and he said, yeah. And Damon said that if Glenn joins the band, he'll join the band. And I look at Damon like, like you got to be kidding me. And Damon smiles and he nods yes. And behind him comes this dude, really sweet guy. Fletcher Ligero, and he said, "Yeah." And Fletcher said that he'll just make noise with his amp, with his amp. And I was like, "Look, I am don't want to be in a band." And he said, "Well, let's just jam. What time do you get off work?" So I went, you know, because I love jamming, you know. And I got there, and Glenn was on the drums. He had like an entire Campbell unfiltered. He was basically smoking in a, a long ash. I didn't realize that Glenn and Damon's drug addiction, the heroin, was was getting worse. You know, I didn't realize that. You know, when you're younger, you're a little naive. I was 19. And uh, the addiction that I grew up with my family was different. I wasn't friends with my parents, I should say. So it's like a different perspective of witness. Anyway, so the next day, I'm at work and I get a phone call. It's um, Mark. He says, hey, we need a name for our band. We have a show on Thursday. This is Tuesday. And I was like, what are you talking about? what are you talking about? We're not a band. And why are you asking me for a name of the band? Because you're the lead singer. Why the fuck would I be the lead singer? And while I was at the register, there's this old guy that worked on the railroad in Atlanta. And he always wore this cat diesel powered cap, like old as hell cap. And um, I said, why, why, why would I be the lead singer? And he said, because you're the girl. And I looked up and I said, cat power. And I hung up the phone. You know, like, you know, it was my way of saying fuck off. Right. And um, about two hours later, because Glenn Thrasher did his fancy low life uh, at a Kinko's because he worked the graveyard shift. So right before I got off work, right before we closed, they all came in. And they there was a Nirvana poster and a Hole poster and a Smashing Pumpkins poster. This was before they took off before they exploded and they put up a flyer Glenn put up put up a flyer right there black and white cat power and I was like oh fuck so then they think it's funny and they think it's cute it's a Thursday the next day I see everyone's like oh my god we're so excited about your show they had recorded a jamming Glenn had given the cassette to a music journalist David T. David T. Riley. Look at you. Your memory is anyway. insane. Okay. <laughs> I know. It's, it, it's called it, it did It, it yeah. has to be visual or I don't remember anything. Ah. But um, I'm almost done. <laughs> okay, we're here. The posters so I, are up. Go, he gives it to this guy. It was in the, it's like the Village Voice in Atlanta called the Creative Low Feed. And it said, I remember you know, it. Thursday night, you know, bands to see, just bands to see, Cat Power, you know, Mark Moore from blah, 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 Glenn Thrasher from blah, 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 Damon Moore from blah, 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 oh Fletcher, Ligero from King Kill 33 Band, and Chan Marsh, Sean Marshall from, you know, the cute girl from Fellini's as lead singer. And I was like, fuck. Ah! So after work, I go home and uh, I had Thursday off 
coincidentally, they knew this shit. So I go home, my old roommate, Robert Hayes, who introduced me to Michael years ago, he passed in a car accident when I turned 20 the following year. He's my best friend. Um, and uh, he'd come in. He was in this band called the Jody Grind. He played stand-up bass. He was very close with the guy Dexter Romweber from the Flat Zero Jets, coincidentally. But anyway, you know, we always smoke a bowl and make an espresso and just talk whenever he'd come in from whatever tour he was on. So we're sitting there, little stone, and he's like, you know, you got your show tonight. And I'm like, I'm, are you fucking crazy? And he's like, I hear you. I hear you in your room with your little song. <laughs> and I got so pissed off. You know, he's like, you know what? You're chicken. You know, he called me a chicken. That's like very in the South. That's like. Yeah. Very insulting. Yeah. You know, yeah. call me a fucking chicken. I'll show you a fucking chicken. Let's fucking go. <laughs> exactly. So we go. <laughs> Good job. He did, he did the right thing. <laughs> he knew. He got you on the stage. <laughs> well, no, we pull up cops everywhere. People getting arrested. But I can hear the fucking, I can hear Mark and Damon and Fletcher and Glenn down there making noise, playing music. And it was beautiful. So I went down into the thing. There was still a lot of people there. And there they were playing. And it looked like something out of like, you know, the room was all mirrored, this performance space called Clang with a K, K-L-A-N-G. Glenn Thrasher used to get people from New York from the No Jazz, No Wave scene to play there. Plus, I didn't know that because I was always at Jesus was there or Bugazi or something, you know, butthole surface. But uh, I just laughed. They sounded amazing and Mark looked amazing, posturing with his sexy long hair and it was beautiful and I laughed. I laughed and I laughed. Then the next day, I went around the corner in Cabbage Town, where, where we all used to live, and I hung out with my son, Debbie, who was a lead singer for Magic Bone. And she said, you know, David T's putting out our CD on Friday, and we're playing at the Claremont Lounge. And that's where my best friend worked. That was a strip club where my best friend worked, where I think my mom was also a dancer. And I was like, no way. Like, I can't believe you're playing there. Like, super small in the hotel above where Gigi Allen used to live because he lived there for a minute. But uh, anyway, I told her yes because I love her. Brilliant, um, amazing woman, uh, Magic Bones, the name of the the band. And um, anyway, and Damon was in her band and I knew that it would just be our friends, you know. You know, we didn't have songs, but it was like the spirit of, I guess, punk rock or, you know, and feeling like I'm not a chicken. So I did it. The next night I went and they were already on stage and all the friends, you know, gone to see all their bands were in the audience, like maybe 40 people. It was loud as hell. I went back in the, you know, where the strippers change and went out on the stage, you know, where you're supposed to dance and I didn't have a mic and I just started playing my guitar really loud, like rhythm, just chords. and um just started screaming and um, my lyrics, screaming my lyrics. And that was our first show. At the Claremont Lounge. Yeah. So that was the first time you you actually took the stage as Cat Power. 
the previous time yep. you just like laughed at them. They did this whole flyer thing. They made it a big deal, but you didn't even perform. You didn't sing that night. You sang that. No. Wow. No. How I interesting. I wasn't holding any beer, so I knew I wouldn't get arrested. So right. I just laughed. Kind of full circle that if that's where, you know, your best friend danced and your mom used to dance that you went in and uh, mm-hmm. sang in that space and and sort of made, you know, it sounds almost like you, I don't know, that, if, how would you describe that symbolism? Because it's pretty wild. That was the first place you sang, yeah. you know? I like, have a lot of those vortex stepping stones in my life. Throughout my life, I've had a lot of, I think it's because of traveling around and being having that idyllic memory where, you know, I have PTSD. So like my memory is always on, you know, my eyes and ears are always really on. And that's why I used to drink so much because, you know, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in all the, all the sounds and the memory. It's a lot. And I think that's why I used to drink so much um, because, you know, I was never addicted to alcohol, but it just helped, you know, me focus. Mm-hmm. On the person in front of me, because if I'm, if I'm, and that's the, the funny thing about my life, of you know, knowing you and knowing, you know, we have mutual friends, you know, and all my friendships are actually one on one. Like when you and I started, you know, I know that we went on tour together, but you know, my friendships are really just like one on one. I don't have a, you know, a a, a click, you know. So when I'm around, like. You know, like if after I play a show, for example, I've been doing that for a really long time. So after I play a show and I'm backstage with all my friends, you know, it's a lot to make sure that I am present with each person. And each person in that tradition of rock and roll, you know, you have a drink. And so that's, it wasn't that I was an addict. It's the, the habit, the behavior of that enters in. And the stress of making sure, like, I want this person to know that I love them. And this person standing right beside them doesn't even know how special this person is. They don't even know how special each of them are to me. And for what reason, for how long, and from where, and who said she, he said, she said, but my, my goal is to one day hopefully bring all these people together so I don't have to drink alcohol to celebrate with each of them when I see them up there. Hmm. Yeah. Because I know we've spoken about addiction and um, when you performed that, your poem, mm-hmm. your piece, what what is the piece called? The Artist's Secular Prayer. That was so wild that you took that and broadcast it. I was totally not expecting that. But we, yeah, we did that for that European tour with you. Yeah. It, it was, was so yeah. powerful mm. for me. And mm. that's what you can... I think that's creative. That's all we have, like have faith that someone out there will, it will really like an arrow, you know, they'll be walking around with that golden arrow for the rest of their lives, shooting that arrow out to others, you know, but that really hit home with me, that piece. Oh my goodness. That was so, that was such a powerful time getting to spend a little time with you and meeting you it gave me so much and uh it was short and sweet but so formative I feel like you are incredibly empathic and one of the ways that that shows is not just through your creative but also um how much you amplify 
social justice initiatives and things that are really causing you pain too, and suffering. That's but it's like, well, I learned so much just by following you from, you know, my personal account and your social media of what's going on all over the world. You are scouring, filtering, researching, and posting while having a very busy career, which I also want to get to because I'm so curious how you landed on this beautiful re reimagining of Bob Dylan's songs, like how that that how that's where you're at right now. And it's just been so stunning to watch because your own songwriting and your own voice is so important. But it's wild to see you you chose one of the greats, you know, and that that how did that come? Like, I'm so curious about that. How did that come to be? And he was okay with it. And now you're traveling all over the world with these sold out at some of the most amazing prestigious venues singing Bob Dylan's songs, you know? Wow. That when I met you, whenever way back, I always think of you more as like original songwriter and beautiful lyricist and voice. And so it's been wild to see how you've moved to honoring another artist that you obviously have a lot of respect for their songwriting. And how has that been for you? But uh, God, I just brought up two subjects, but those are the two things. No, that's th okay. I guess I just wanted to make sure that if anyone's out there listening, that you follow Cat Power, not just for your voice and your music, but also that you are a wellspring of of connecting people to causes. Um, in your stories alone, there have been so many things. I was like, I didn't know that was happening in the world. Oh my gosh, yes, I need to sign that petition. I need to do... You always have these action points. And so thank you. Really, all I wanted to say about that was thank you for doing that and for being a voice. There's such a strange, almost at times, stigma around activism and art. Sometimes people say, shut up and sing your song, right? Or just play. We don't need yeah, your opinion. Need that, But then when you think about it over the ages, the people who use their voice, they really made impact. And the, and the concerts, the benefit concerts, the amount of money raised to actually feed people, to actually go towards helping others and, and what that did to the artists that were involved at full circle, it created more goodness in the world. So I, of course, well, all advocate for that. Belief, I believe, I, I know that humanity is a culture of community. We have always been before the television, before the television, we would, gather with one another and discuss and learn old wives tales and indigenous thinking was like, just got totally abolished in this country. But, you know, part of women not being able to walk legally outside in America after 8 PM, you know, not being able to show their ankle. There's so many different layers of history that we only had each other as a resource. And I feel like there's like so many more human beings that care about dignity and humanity and resourcefulness than there are people who are, you know, narcissists, sociopaths. It's just the, the reality of the world. The problem is, is that people that are narcissist sociopaths tend to be really, really successful because they will betray they will do whatever it takes to be that successful. 
And that's the, that's the problem. You know, since the Arab Spring, we can all thank those who sacrifice themselves. The Buddhist gentleman who lit himself on fire, I forgot what that's called. Uh, self called? I think self-immolation. <clears throat> self-immolation that launched the Arab Spring um, Facebook. That, my belief, is that's what conjured and created the Occupy movement in this nation, in America, and that spanned out. You know, it went also other places. I think that sort of remembrance of things that we've seen, you know, the 60s, the protest movement, you know, when Bob stopped the protest and, you know, went out into the, the major leagues, you know, and stuck with it and they were booing him. You know, he took the Hawks out and they didn't stop. They didn't give up on their tour. People were booing him. They kept doing it every night. But Dylan, like in 1966, you know, back when the revolution started after, you know, he went electric and the music kind of like really opened up. People started moving to LA. They wanted to do this wild. They wanted to do something wild. You know, they wanted to express themselves. Then you had like the hippies. Then you had like people protesting Vietnam. You had like these young people in college, like quitting school, camping out. This this Black Lives Matter, for example, during the pandemic, I think it forced a lot of these, you know, white women that went to the Women's March who could never talk about certain things because it was uncomfortable or they had a difficult time talking to their family about maybe their family members were Republicans or something, you know. So they kind of just bowed like like we've been trained to do in society around the world and just let sleep it out lie because they don't want to ag- aggravate, you know. They don't want to be dominated or invalidated or beat up or outcast in the family or whatever. But a lot of these women, white women, showed up for that rally. And I think Black Lives Matter, you know, when they would cut off streets and highways and kind of force people to look at their internal narrative of like, not what side are they on necessarily, but how are your daily actions and um, communications affecting the world around you or the world that you live in or the world that others live in? Are you a part of the problem or are you a part of the resistance? Are you a part of liberation or are you a part of, you know, capitalist gluttony and denial? But um, I think that when I had the offer to play the concert at Royal Albert Hall, November, very a few months ago, came out, whatever. But uh, the year before was the end of the, the covers record tour. And I thought I got this offer to play at the Royal Albert Hall. And my first response was, well, I want to do that record. Um, because, you know, that was such a pivotal time in um, history, but in music history, because that's when Bob was like, doing these protests and singing these incredible songs. And it was such a crucial moment in time where he brought the critical thinking to an an enormous amount of people. And Bob is a a 19th century French literature academic. He's a writer, you know, he's an amazing writer. So he's read everything, you know, and he's heard everything. and for him to be a songwriter and to really be authentic 
in, in his knowledge and in his world, uh, to be able to tell the temperature of the street, kind of like hip hop or punk rock, that um, I felt like I wanted to honor him because it would have been the last show of the tour for the covers record. And the BBC were playing five of the singles from that record. It was my third covers record. And um, the BBC were playing five different songs from that record, which is unheard of for me. I mean, you know. Um, so I thought it's a perfect bookend for the tour. I didn't even think of recording it. I thought later that I'd want to record it as a, a document. I was totally broke. But anyway, I was able to get that to happen through my record label Domino. But I was reflecting on, well, if I record it, then maybe, you know, Bob's still walking on earth. A lot of people do post-mortem records and stuff. I felt like, what a great end to the coverage record tour if I just play the show. If I record it, what a beautiful nod to the man himself who's still running around writing incredible songs. I mean, his last two records are profound. And um, and those who know Bob's music and understand how incredible he is as, as a writer um, will understand what I'm saying. And I felt like, why not just record it and let let it live, let it have a breath for Bob in his waking life instead of waiting for someday maybe doing it. And that's that's really it, you know. At a time when I felt like people have found community around the world, through Instagram, through learning, through this device, through technology, which is a blessing, you know, for us to communicate around the world with each other and with shadow banning and and, and um, freedom of speech uh, being really kind of at risk, especially in Florida, um, in the South in general, consistently, um, and for women constantly, people of color, indigenous constantly. I just thought, you know, maybe these words and these songs will enhance people to think about the moment in time we're standing in right now, like when Bob chose to gain a wider audience, what he was bringing to their critical thinking through his writing. Um, it really kind of, it sparked something really important. I'm not saying that this record will, that this record will do such, but it's just a question of balance of looking at history where we've come from and where we're at right now, you know, you know, not even when it was recorded, you know, at that time at Royal Albert Hall, but right now today, whoever listens to it next week, you know, like that's the important aspect of doing the record and wanting to record it because not everybody is a creative. Not everybody has access to internet. Not everybody has access to running water or, freedom to vote or to read. And I think that that's why the people who I try to connect with on social media, I have alliances that I've tried to water and care for and, you know, be in partner with, because I think those of us who know, know that there is an urgency with our planet ecologically. There is an urgency with our social, economic, socioeconomic issue internationally you know we have the tools to create community even if we feel lonely or depressed or older or just a kid or poor or whatever whatever you feel your weaknesses or your 
loss is there is community for everybody. And that's why I appreciate, you know, you noticing and attempting what you are doing with what you do with Launch Left at a time when we desperately needed a call to action on so many issues that you know about and so many people, you know, that listen to you and follow you and pay attention to what you're doing. That's, that's all, those are the people in the community that are part of the movement. And that's a big movement. And it, you know, it doesn't have a name, you know, it's, and it's easy to recognize one another. And that's the blessing. You can have a simple conversation with somebody on the bus or, you know, your cab driver at the restaurant or, you know, at the post office. You can have a simple conversation back and forth and you will have met your chances of meeting somebody within the movement are so enormous now. Mm-hmm. It was very different, I think, when our parents were trying to create the movement, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. And we're already there. We're already all collaborating and creatives. Everything that we do, whether it's film, music. But the resistance but, against but there, Yes, but that's also what's wild and it's very confusing because while there's all this solidarity and coming together, there's also this other piece, which is the habit to seeing things through the capitalistic lens, like a step on your neighbor to get somewhere, right? So creating spaces and just echoing out the importance of exactly what you said, really having these simple conversations with people and reminding us, even though it's a little confusing, we're doing it. We're doing our best. It's tough, but it's also always been tough. And it's also incredibly beautiful. We don't have to fall into the habit that seems to be the most strong one out there, which is to want to be rich and famous, right? That sort of that that's, that's the, the American dream, you know. That's yeah, a lie. That exactly. Exactly. That's, that got told to our parents. Yeah, that's the lie that got told to our parents. Mm-hmm. You know, through the television. My mom sat in front of the TV when it came out, and she was five or whatever when she was born, mm-hmm. and that's where the brain got washed mm-hmm. with the commercials, the ideology, the white prism, and it's a lie. And it was only to make someone many, many, many white men very wealthy Mm -hmm. and ruling class around the world and it worked it is so depressing and it is so tragic but at the same time you know I feel like we're not allowed to really be our true selves with social media because of the attack on wordplay the attack on freedom of speech the attack on like uh, the construct of, you know, cancel culture and persistence of uh, finding the wrong, yeah. you know, finding the wrong where, like you said, yeah. we all got a journey and nobody's on the same page completely. Right. There are different words and different sentences that you off our pages that are a whole lifetime to, to each of us. Mm-hmm. But that common denominator, that Bob Marley song, uh, Zimbabwe, where he talks about, you know, every man has a heart in their chest, you know, we're all equal. And that's, that's 
what has not been projected exactly through these these movies and in the in these industries and the, in the culture american culture it's been it's been advertised as such but it's it's a falsehood and and everybody getting away with all of it knows that and it's sad and depressing but we don't have time for that we have to make sure we take care of ourselves and those closest to us and keep you know keep bringing joy like you said Keep maintaining yeah. the joy and keep maintaining, you know, present time. Keep maintaining the joy and the present time and the health. And try not to fall into the same into the same pattern that we have fallen into, which is always an us us against them mentality and forgetting our shared humanity, even with our enemies and even with the people who are making all the money by screwing everyone else over. At the same time, they have a heart in their chest. And so how do we how do we kind of like yeah. break the spell that was created that overtook them? And how do we also make sure it doesn't overtake us in the process of trying to do that? So it's a very, right. it, you know, it. it's really, it's, it's very, it is complex, but I think this, the simplest way I always try to go back to is like, we all want to be safe and happy. Like that's, mm. that's the, that's the bottom line for everyone and then the perversion that made money or things more important than than taking care of each other that seems to be the the trouble spot and then how do you undo that i don't know if it's by fighting as much as by dissolving it and how do you do that by looking maybe well, like you, you said do it you know you put women in power globally around the world hell yeah <laughs> That's how you do it, period. I agree. And that's the only way, you know, and it has to be an election. You know, women have to choose. I kind of wish I was but, a guy right now that said, I agree. Because, of course, you know, we're both there's women. There's very few of them. That, <laughs> very few of them that <clears throat> admit to agreeing. There's, there's plenty, though. Agree, there are many allies that are men, too, that would probably be into it. Enough. Right. There's not enough. There's not enough. And number two, there's more of us on earth than there are men. That always boggles my son's mind. But my son, it's like raising children, you know, they're geniuses. You know, they don't have a filter. They have so much brain imagination. They see things clearly. They don't have a veil. And I find that the communications with my son, just the little questions in the talk, some of these things, help me help my help me like crack through something that I hadn't thought about and that's I think that's one of the ways is to listen to the the young people these kids today like these high school students they know what's up you know and the problem in this country this country and probably obviously everywhere else with the caste system because of colonialism you won't have many wealthy kids go into school with poor kids generally ever. So that system is the first system that has to be cracked. That whole system. I, let's get back to changed. the part where um, women, where will, women will, yeah. are voted in. Yeah. The, t- talk talk a, a little a, bit. Talk. Not talk. just one damn woman. So talk a little bit about that. How about you just, and this maybe will be the final thing we chat about so we don't keep you all day. So I like what you just said, 
you actually had a solution because sometimes I just see it as complexity and I just, I, the best, the best way through for me is to, um, take personal responsibility and try every day to work on my lens and the way I am in the world and why, you know, the people that I'm around. You are not alone. And that's the, that's the only thing I can do that and I know has impact, you know? Millions of us in this country alone are, we're at the same table and we're all in different places. The reality is if I had, you know, graduated from school, went to college and worked at this place all these years, I wouldn't listen to a damn word I said. But because I've traveled the world for 30 years, around, 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 met a million different kind of people, different types of people, different types of languages, different types of environments. Uh, I've seen with my mind, my eyes, my heart, my soul, I've seen, I've seen humanity. I've seen darkness and I've seen light. And I know in my experiences, there are incredible, powerfully um, prepared men that are willing to support matriarchal society. I've seen them. I've also seen women who talking with them. Their daily issues in life are much more than just their job or their family. You know, mother, wife business owner, you know, community leader. There's so many parts of a woman. Um, there's a thing I saw on Instagram recently with Meryl Streep, and she was sitting beside Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese, and I can't remember the other guy. But she said, you know, <clears throat> women have always, you know, we know how to speak men. We've always known. We've always had to. And she said, but men, and she kind of skirt, skirted away a little bit and said, men really don't, you know, know how to speak women. And the reaction, you can find it, and the reaction of the men sitting around her, you know, she was alone up there. And that was really, you know, one of those sad but true realizations of, like, for this witness, like, wow, she she really, they're really not, they're really looking at her like, what does she mean? That's what I've seen. I've seen a lot of women communicate uh incredibly about what we, you and I are trying to spit out, you know, and I think about the past that women, you know, not having been allowed the tools because of religion, not being allowed the tools to be our powerful selves, to create our own language, our own dialogue. We haven't created our own spaces. We have very little to do with what's at hand globally. And that is what I'm focusing on now. And that is where I think all this bullshit can stop. We can do it, you know, alone because we already have. We can continue doing it. But the real way we can do it is if those strong men, that there aren't that many of them, if those strong men, you know, protect us, even just standing with us, reciting exactly what we just said so we don't have to repeat it to the again to the other men who will refuse to listen to us it really is women you know the future female like that that's a real deal and that in my belief system is the only way to clean up the earth clean up the scam and i believe that it's got to be global it has to be an agreement 
you know, and of course they'll be the macho wise guys that will do what they've always done, you know, blow us up, you know, it's, it's like the nature of man. There are some women who've had to play ball in the men's world very viciously and have been very successful at it. But I'm not thinking of those women. I'm not thinking of behaving like a man. I'm thinking of behaving like a woman. You know, what we take care of as sisters, you know, all these conversations I've had, that you've had, we've all had privately with our girlfriends, our family, strangers on the street who need help. You know, I think that there are those that know and those who need help finding out, really. And that's, it's all about communication. We need to use the technology that we have right now to amplify. Why do you think women should be in positions of power? Because women have raised the men on this earth and the men have made a big mistake over and over and over and over and over. What a way to end a conversation. To all the men out there, to all the beautiful allies out there. I love men. Are you crazy? I know. Me too. We love you. I mean, what not to love? Love you, Sean. Thank you for being on Launch Left. It means a lot. You're amazing. I'm so proud of you. I don't know if that feels good to hear people say they're proud of you, but, you know, you do so much for so many people. And especially with this, you just are an angel on earth. Thank you. Well, thank you. That I've never... I've never been called that. Thank you for being on the show, really. like it, I know it took a while, the journey, but thanks for sticking with me. We did it. <laughs> we did it. We, and we'll do more. Hi, Mariah. Welcome to Launch Left Podcast. So glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Lingua Franca. That's the name of your music artist self. Um, where did you get that name? So I studied linguistics in grad school, um, and that I draw a lot on what I learned about phonetics and syntax and morphology and like the way I write. And so at the time, and I was setting out on my rap career around the same time, I was thinking of a name and how, you know, uh, in linguistics, the lingua franca, lingua franca is a um, language used to communicate across cultural boundaries, um, like French and parts of like post-colonial Africa or, you know, English on the internet. And so I was like, I want my music to do that also. Maybe without the colonizer piece, but connect people. Um, across cultural boundaries. So I'm hoping it does that. Tell us a little bit about yourself outside of music. I know that you're uh, a doctor, a doctor professor, I think, right? In Athens? Well, yeah, I, uh, I do have a PhD in language and literacy education, but I totally, upon graduating uh, 2022, just kind of left that world behind and I went into the world of labor organizing. So I actually, you know, by day, work with, you know, fast food workers that are trying to organize their workplaces. And then um, uh, by night, I do yet more activism, very involved with the movement to stop Cup City here in Atlanta, where I live. Um, and is very interested in internationalism as well, just, you know, paying attention to what's happening. And a lot of, you know, speaking of colonialism, I was talking about French and English earlier at the top, just, you know, what's going on in the global South and like how we living here in the States are implicated in how we can help fight back. So uh, that's a lot, of, you know, a lot, a little bit of what I do outside of making music, but also inside of the music itself uh, as well, I guess. Mm-hmm. And do you, are you aware of Reverend Lawson? Have you ever? Um, uh, James Lawson? Lawson? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I cited him in my dissertation. 
we're very blessed here in LA. He has like a monthly group that he'll bring people in and just talk about, you know, a lot of what he speaks about is the labor, labor movement here in Los Angeles. He's been an intrinsic part of shifting that and bringing, you know, this kind of Gan- the Gandhian way into mm-hmm. how we yeah. organize and really powerful. He's not, I think he just turned 90 one or something and he's still he's still doing it yeah so i was speaking with sean and and we were having a deep discussion about i guess what it landed on was like are there any solutions to the kind of dominant culture that is somehow fixated on money and war and cruelty and subjugation and and all these things that bum us out. And she said something like, you know, all I could go to is personal responsibility, trying to be your own, you know, buoy, chain, show there's other ways of doing it. And she goes, yeah, put women in fucking power. Uh, And I was like... it kind of got chills. I was like, oh my God, yes. And we start talking about that. Do you feel that that would, is that, would you agree with her that that's the way through? If like, if we were able to, to, to be more of a matriarchy than a patriarchy, would we have a better shot at uh, fixing some of these uh, seemingly hard-worn habits, cultural habits? Yeah, I certainly like to think so. Um, I, I, I think there are also examples of like women who have used power for for evil as well as good. We talked and about that. Ultimately, that. the difference in whether someone uses it for good or bad comes down to money. Like you said, in a culture that's so fixated around money and accumulation and this you know greed that's driven behind driving that that's driving things and it's behind things. And so I would say that we need more more of a matriarchal society. We have to beat you know uh, we have to be racism. We have to beat classism. And ultimately, we have to be capitalism because when you get down to where that greed is coming from, it's because we have a society where rich people, rich women, rich gay people, rich black folks, or whoever it may be, can all serve the system that ends up harming other people. And if you take that money motive out from behind, um, behind everything, and let people kind of, you know, speak and lead from a place of trying to correct those uh, historical imbalances, then we're talking. Then we're cooking with gas. So that's what I'm trying to see. That feels right, what you just said. And that's something that is so outside of how things operate that it feels really daunting to make those kinds of suggestions. But at the same time, until we try it, we won't realize how effective it is. Yeah. (laughs) So we need to try it. You know, it's like, let's give it a whirl. Um, but, you know, it's complex. Everything is complex. And I, I don't know. Uh, at the same time, it's all really simple if we could learn to love another and have that be the center of what we're – have that centered over money and power. I think things Period. would be better. It just would. Period. So, so thank you for sharing that message and also sharing it through your music. And I'm just really glad that we got introduced to you through Cat Power and that you were able to jump on this call. I know you're a busy woman and I appreciate your time. And hey, you too. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, uh, uh. Communication Workers of America. United Campus Workers of Georgia 3265, bitch. Uh, uh. Which side are you on, my people? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, my people? Which side are 
and look chipper We're never talking and whipping the shopping carts They pack the beer in the walk-ins and stack the weird little boxes Keep our kitchen fridges stocked and our financial market solvent They clocking for a pithy fitty bucks and bear the coffin They're like 60 thrifty chuds and get spit on like sitting ducks And they are sick of getting fucked So you ever wanted to honor them? Here's my ass for all my hominids Collective bargaining, Amazon and Target and FedEx Walmart and into carton hole foods till we all get what we are to get. Workers run the company that risen in the argument. So are you with them? Are you in? El Pueblo, you need Hamas that I've been El Pueblo, you need Hamas that I've been El Pueblo, you need Hamas that I've been Hamas that I've been Hamas that I've been Position of trading and passion for wages and cash, cause they shackled by capitalism. Imagine a minute, millions of average citizens planning the spinach and wax in the kitchens and stacking the linens, contractors and renters and tenants, the labor extracted for pittance. What if they coordinated to address the sort of state of it in an organization? Cause fucking what? That's what organized labor does. And not even sort of, it's war of the crux. Taking the power from hoarders of bucks, big bankers offshore and they cuts. Returning the value of labor to those who created the billionaires. Oh, it's us. If you dated and totally about waking up early to earn a bag If you sad about Bernie, if you got a curious turning and had it with passively lurking We got your back and we happy to have you Out on the picket line actively working Go in Which side are you on? Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left of center artists in all creative fields. <laughs>